and welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. This episode, the July 16th National Radio Edition of the Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network. Listen to the Game Before the Money live each Saturday morning from 10 to 11 Central on the Sports Map Radio Network. Listen on your local affiliate or at sportsmapradio.com. I'm your host, Jackson Michael. All right. Happy weekend, everybody. Got a great show lined up. We have Bill Butler with us. He was a rookie for the 1959 Packers. Vince Lombardi's first season with the team. And the next year, he started for Tom Landry for the Dallas Cowboys in their first ever season. He also played for the Steelers and the Vikings in the 1960s. And he's got some wonderful stories to share with us. Many of you might know that Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry were assistant coaches together for the New York Giants in the 1950s before they became head coaches. The great Bob Lilly told me that the two of them studied a lot of game film together while they were with the Giants. They dug back into the archives as far as they could. You can listen to Bob Lilly tell that story on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, which I also host, and that's episode number 10 of that podcast. Tom Landry was the Giants' defensive assistant and is generally the man credited with inventing the 4-3 defense. Not very many people realize this, but Tom Landry was a very good NFL player for the Giants. He even led the NFL in interceptions returned for touchdowns one season and also led the league in punting. He was even named All-NFL in 1954. Lombardi was an excellent college player at Fordham, and he was a member of the famous Seven Blocks of Granite. Another neat fact about Lombardi is that he also coached under legendary college coach Red Blake at Army before he took the job with the Giants. And you know who he replaced at Army? Sid Gilman. Yes, that's Sid Gilman, the future Hall of Fame coach for the Chargers. Gilman spent one year as an assistant at Army. Lombardi was the offensive assistant on the Giants, and he created a specific role for Frank Gifford at halfback in the Giants offense and duplicated that for Paul Horning in Green Bay. Coming up in this show, Bill Butler will share stories about playing for Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi that you won't hear anywhere else, including how Vince Lombardi secretly traded him to the New York Giants on the Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network. Okay, this show is all about football, but sometimes football mixes with other sports. Since Major League Baseball's All-Star Game is this week, I decided to take a look at a few people who played both pro football and Major League Baseball. Coming up later, Bill Butler is going to share with you his decision to choose to play in the NFL over signing with the Milwaukee Braves, now known as the Atlanta Braves. But we're going to talk about a few guys who were able to balance both pro football and baseball. 
The first two that probably come to everybody's mind are Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders. Bo's pro careers started a couple years ahead of Deion's. I remember Bo Jackson at Auburn, and he was an incredible running back. I used to get the sporting news as a kid that was printed on newsprint back then. And I remember Bo Jackson on the cover while he was at Auburn. And they talked about how great of a baseball player he was. And I think that was the first I learned of him playing baseball. My second baseball memory of him was early in his rookie year. And we were having a fantasy baseball draft in the basement that night. And at that time, it was called Rotisserie League Baseball. And my friend's dad came downstairs and said, who drafted Bo Jackson? And I meekly raised my hand, fearing that he might have gotten injured or something. But my friend's dad looked at me and he said, he had seven RBIs tonight. We were all just stunned because nobody knew what to expect from him in baseball. He was the Heisman Trophy winner. And you just kind of assumed that he was going to play football. Some of you will remember this. He later said he was going to commit to baseball and then play pro football as a quote unquote hobby. I remember watching Inside the NFL with Len Dawson and Nick Bonacani and Bonacani saying that if I were playing in the league right now, I'd say hobby this and hit him really hard. But Bo Jackson was an amazing running back. He only played four seasons, but get this, he had the longest run in the NFL in three of those four seasons. Those rushes were for 91 yards, 92 yards, and 88 yards. The last two touchdown runs of his career were for 62 yards and 55 yards. He was a bulldozer and he was fast. He reminded me a lot of Earl Campbell, the way he ran over people. He was very tough to bring down when he'd get into the secondary, and you'd often see two or three defensive backs struggling to bring him down. He dragged defenders for a few yards a lot of times. His baseball career was also special, of course. He hit that monstrous home run in the All-Star game. I remember watching that on TV and was just in awe of how far he hit it. I later saw him play live when he played for the Chicago White Sox. I was in the left-field bleachers, and he was playing right in front of us. A ball came down the line, and Milwaukee had a runner on second. Looked like an easy run. He fielded the ball and one-hopped the plate on a rope. Carlton Fisk actually waited for the runner to slide into the tag. The greatest throw I've ever seen in my life, and I've been to a lot of baseball games. The whole stadium went silent. That ended the inning, and Bo just trotted off the field like it was an everyday thing. People know him for his hitting and his running, but he had a rocket for an arm as well. Bo Jackson, honestly, if it wasn't for his injury, I think there's a possibility he could have been in both the baseball and the football halls of fame. Deion Sanders is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was also a pretty good baseball player. I don't know if he would have been a Hall of Famer, But I remember seeing him on television recently saying that he often wonders what might have been if he'd only played baseball. Sanders was drafted by the Kansas City Royals in 1985, the same team who drafted Bo Jackson in 1986. Sanders didn't sign with the Royals and was later drafted by the Yankees. The Yankees released him in his second year. There was some friction with the Yankees about him playing for the Falcons at the same time as reported in the New York Times. And eventually Sanders 
signed with the Atlanta Braves. Little known fact about Deion Sanders, he was the major league leader in triples in 1992. He was a great defensive back and kick returner, just electric on the field. There are only a few guys, probably Billy White Shoes Johnson, Devin Hester, maybe Desmond Howard. Once they were getting the ball, it was must-see television. The excitement of not knowing what was going to happen. Kind of like one of those great sluggers in baseball when any time they come to the plate could be a home run. Same way with Deion Sanders returning kicks and interceptions in the NFL. There's no question that he was Hall of Fame caliber as a defensive back, but when primetime got the ball, it was primetime. Sometimes I wonder what he could have done on offense. He was amazing to watch run. A lot of players have great talent, especially at the NFL level. And a lot of players put up great stats, but it's the guys who can change the dynamics and momentum in the middle of the game that to me are truly exceptional. And Deion Sanders was one of those rare gems. A third guy that played both baseball and football around the time that Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders played was Brian Jordan. He was even teammates with Deion Sanders on the Atlanta Falcons. Jordan wasn't as well known to casual fans, but to those who were following, they knew he was a very good player at both sports. He even played in the same secondary as Sanders with Atlanta. And here's an odd stat. He scored two safeties in the same season. Very few people have done that. Doug English is one guy off the top of my head who I know scored two safeties in one season. Justin Houston did it a couple of years back, I believe. But it's a very rare thing to see. Brian Jordan played a handful of years in the NFL and then played most of his 15-year major league career with the Cardinals and Braves. There are a few more players who have ties to both Major League Baseball and the NFL that I'd like to share with you. Ace Parker, a Pro Football Hall of Famer, and the man who won the 1940 NFL MVP award, also played Major League Baseball for the A's under legendary manager Connie Mack. Another guy with an interesting story is Greasy Neal. He is also in the Pro Football Hall of Fame for being the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles when they won back-to-back NFL championships in 1948 and 1949. Greasy Neal also played for the Cincinnati Reds in the infamous 1919 World Series featuring the Black Sox scandal. He was a starting outfielder for the Reds and had 10 hits in that World Series. And that's probably not the most interesting thing about his baseball football connection. Greasy Neal was also a college football head coach and coached Washington and Jefferson University to the Rose Bowl and played Major League Baseball that very same year. Could you imagine that today? A major league outfielder coaching a team to the Rose Bowl? Pro Football Hall of Fame coach Greasy Neal did just that. There are also some current and very recent NFL players with ties to baseball. Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray was drafted in the first round in both sports. Reportedly, the only person in history to claim that honor. Russell Wilson transferred from playing quarterback at North Carolina State to Wisconsin after the NC State 
head coach told him that he couldn't play minor league baseball and still start at quarterback for the Wolfpack. Wilson was in the Rockies organization at the time and chose to continue to play minor league ball and transferred to Wisconsin. Currently, Wilson's former teammate Golden Tate recently changed pro careers from the NFL to baseball. He signed with the Port Angeles Lefties of the West Coast League this summer. The Lefties are not affiliated with a major league club, however. A long time ago, it was common for players to play at the college level in multiple sports. 1947 Heisman Trophy winner Johnny Lujak lettered in four sports at Notre Dame. 1962 Heisman Trophy winner Terry Baker also played in the Final Four. So in those days, it was more common for players to have multiple sports to decide upon. Our guest today, Bill Butler, played in the NFL from 1959 through 1964. He also had some baseball options that he'll tell us about and tell us how he narrowly escaped the long arm of the NCAA while playing minor league baseball. Coming up next, I'll discuss the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the college football playoff on the Game Before the Money. This week, the Pro Football Hall of Fame announced 25 players as senior semifinalists for its 2023 class. Up to three will be selected for induction next year. There are way too many names to list, obviously, but I wanted to focus on one guy in particular, and that's wide receiver Sterling Sharp. In over 40 years of my watching football, I've never seen a Packers receiver come close to what he was able to do on the field. And that includes seeing Devontae Adams and Hall of Famer James Lofton playing for Green Bay, who were both excellent players. The Packers' turnaround back to being a perennial playoff franchise is usually traced back to Brett Favre and Reggie White. But I think the guy who really started the turnaround, in my opinion, was Sterling Sharp. He was a complete player. And look, Jerry Rice is the greatest of all time with all due respect to Don Hudson. But I'm not exaggerating when I say that Sterling Sharp was the next best thing to Jerry Rice when they were in the league together. I know that sounds crazy, but if you don't believe me, go online and watch the film. Sterling Sharp was more dangerous than anybody at wide receiver except Jerry Rice during that period. They were clearly the two best receivers in the game at that time. And they both had similar skill sets when it came to the ability to get open, the ability to make the catch, and most importantly, the ability to run after the catch. That was really one of Rice's trademarks when you watched him. But those were also key parts to Sterling Sharp's game as well. Now, I'm not going to tell you that Sterling Sharp was better than Jerry Rice or even as good as Jerry Rice because that's not accurate. You can't say that about anybody in comparison to Jerry Rice if you were lucky enough to see Jerry Rice play. So I don't want to give that impression. But I can say that while they were both playing at the same time, Sterling Sharp was closer to Jerry Rice than anybody else was. And I know that's a big deal to say, but Sterling Sharp set the all-time single-season receptions record while Jerry Rice was playing and then broke his own record the next year. He was the first player in history 
to have two 100-catch seasons in a row. In fact, he was the first player in history to have two 100-catch seasons, period. And this is all while Jerry Rice is playing. During the seven years that he played, he led the NFL in receiving categories in four of those years. And I'll say it again, while Jerry Rice was playing. Sadly, Sterling Sharp suffered a neck injury and his career ended after seven seasons. Had he played another three years at simply an average level, I don't think there's any question that he would already be in the Hall of Fame with a 10-year career. A lot of receivers had longer careers that are deservedly in the Hall of Fame, but I don't know how many of them have seven years that could top Sterling Sharp's seven years. He was that good. And I wouldn't be surprised if his brother, Hall of Famer Shannon Sharp, would wholeheartedly back up everything I've just told you. One other note about the Hall of Fame and senior candidates getting in that I'd like to make is the Hall of Fame's first induction was in 1963. So there were a lot of players who played before then who likely would be inducted if it had opened sooner. Guys like Al Wistert, Ox Emerson, Gene Burrito. What I'd love to see happen is a special super seniors induction for maybe 10 or so players who played before 1960. Because right now there are several guys like Laverne Dilwig, who is on the 2023 semifinalists, who deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, but aren't probably solely because they played long before the Hall of Fame opened. Going to follow up on something I said last week, when talking about the changes in college football, I mentioned that I was a big advocate for the four-team college football playoff rather than expanding it. But there are a lot of people who want to expand it. You hear a lot of talk about why it's necessary. So I decided to devote a little bit of time for a dissenting point of view. First of all, let's look at why we wanted a college football playoff in the first place. It was to solve the problem of not having the college football champion crowned on the field. 1997 is a great example of this. You had undefeated Nebraska and undefeated Michigan, both fantastic teams. Nebraska won the Big 12 championship game and the Orange Bowl by a combined score of 96-32. to They just crushed people, including third-ranked Tennessee led by Peyton Manning in the Orange Bowl in a number two versus number three matchup. But that was only good for second place in one of the polls. Michigan won the AP National Championship. The Wolverines were also undefeated that year, but they beat Colorado by more points. That was the only common opponent between the two. And these were some of the things that went into deciding national championships in those days. Nebraska won the coaches polls national championship, but nothing got decided on the field. And it was situations like that that made us want a college football playoff. That was the sole reason. There was never any talk of wanting a team ranked 8th or 12th or 16th having a chance to win the national championship. 
We just wanted to know what would happen if Michigan played Nebraska. Many of you likely remember the poll era. Writers and coaches would vote in polls to declare a national champion at the end of the season. Things rarely got decided on the field. And because teams ranked number one and number two rarely played each other, especially late in the season, the college football national championship started being called the mythical national championship because it was all arbitrary. In fact, for a long time, the polls declared a national champion before bowl games were even played. So you'd have the national champions lose in a bowl game. In 1998, we finally got the BCS, which was indeed flawed, but much better than people guessing about what would happen between two undefeated teams. Of course, sometimes you'd have three worthy teams and only two slots available. But nobody ever thought that an 8th ranked team or a 12th ranked team deserved a title shot. So that's one major reason why I'm against expanded playoffs. The problem that we as fans wanted solved was the polls deciding national championships when the top two or three teams had identical records, especially when they were undefeated. Point number two is that four teams is the closest we can get to what we as fans demanded all those years and were told was impossible. Let's look at last year. You had one undefeated team, Cincinnati. There were four one-loss teams in the college football playoff top 20. Notre Dame was one of them, but they lost at home to Cincinnati. So overall, the final four worked out very well. What if we had eight teams? Well, then you get a mess because there were nine two-loss teams in the top 20. So who gets to go? A 12-team bracket would have added a three-loss team last year who's ranked above several two-loss teams. So it could really get confusing when it doesn't have to be. We as fans wanted a clear-cut champion. That's why we wanted the college football playoff. And the four-team bracket gets us as close as we can get to that. My third and final point is the redundancy of expanded playoffs. Those of you who have been reading the GameBeforeTheMoney.com for a while might remember the post I wrote in 2015. I showed what the brackets would have been for an 8-team and a 16-team college football playoffs. And even the 8-team playoff had the potential for rematches at every single stage of the playoffs. And in a 16-team playoff, Alabama could have won the 2014 National Championship playing only SEC opponents for the entire playoffs. I get why people think that bigger is better, but in this case, I just don't think it is. Expansion is going to be mostly teams from the biggest conferences, and those teams are likely going to end up playing each other multiple times. And we've even had that in the four-team playoff with Georgia and Alabama last year. But do we really need to see lower tier playoff games between conference rivals who played once or twice already, especially when they both have two or three losses? I know in other sports you get mulligans and you can get swept by a conference or division rival and still win in the playoffs, but we're going to have mega conferences. And if the playoff expands to eight, 12 or 16 teams, It's likely that those conferences are going to get the majority of the slots and we'll see do-overs and second chances and matchups that we've already seen in conference play. 
And that is the exact opposite of why we as fans wanted the playoffs. That was to create matchups of the best teams that hadn't played each other yet to determine a true champion. Now, in February, Bill Hancock, the executive director of the college football playoff, said that the four-team format will stand for the next four years. But he also said that he expects discussions to continue about a new format that would go into effect for the 2026-2027 season. So that's my take. I know the great college football analyst Phil Steele shares the same opinion. And coming up next, we'll have a great conversation with a man who once led the NFL in punt and kick return yardage, Bill Butler, sharing stories about the 1950s and 1960s NFL. Coming up next on The Game Before the Money, please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. Okay, Bill Butler is on the phone with us. I first interviewed him for episode 62 of the Game Before the Money podcast. You can hear some great stories from him in that episode, and you're about to hear some great stories from him now about his days with the 1959 Packers under Vince Lombardi the 1960 Cowboys under Tom Landry, and also the Pittsburgh Steelers and Minnesota Vikings of the 1960s. Bill, it's always great to chat with you, and thanks so much for being on the show. You played college ball at Chattanooga before being drafted, and Cole Strange was a first-round pick out of Chattanooga this year by the Patriots. Uh, What do you you remember about being drafted when, when you were picked by the Packers? I got a call from... Jack Venisi, he was a general manager, and he told me I was drafted 19th by the Packers, and I don't even know if they took the 20th, but uh, there was nothing mentioned about Lombardi at that time, and about a month later, I was mailed a contract, and I had that contract. I had some interest from the Milwaukee Braves, and I was also drafted by a Canadian team. I just laid them all down, and a month or two later, I made a decision I'd try Green Bay. The main thing was that Green Bay was the closest place uh, to Burrow in my hometown, and I figured if I didn't make it, I could always go back to baseball or to Canada. So that's how I ended up there. Yeah, wow. So um, you you had an opportunity to play baseball, too. You were a great all-around athlete then. Well, the baseball part, I went for a little tryout down in Milwaukee, and then I was contacted by the Braves, and they wanted to make me an offer. And it wasn't for the major league team as Definitely was going to be for the minors, but I was only 17, and my mother wouldn't sign. She said I was too young to think about that and to go all the way wherever they had their camp. So I didn't get an opportunity. But what Milwaukee wanted to do was, Barry Burton, their center fielder, was getting it up in years, and he was not a real good leadoff hitter. 
and I had a pretty good batting average in high school, and I had a little bit faster speed than Bruton did, so they were going to replace me in center field. So then you ended up going to Chattanooga then? I went to Chattanooga, and I played triple-A ball for the Chattanooga Lookouts, but I played under another guy's name. The name I used was Bob Otis. I played, and thank God that our trainer at Chattanooga was also the trainers for the lookout, and he found out that the NCAA had been told that I was playing under a assumed name, and he told me not to come out to the game that night. So I never went back out there again, and it just dropped as of that time. So you, you narrowly avoided a NCAA violation there then? Yep. If I would have been caught, they could have uh, disqualified me and considered me a pro, which is against the regulations of the NCAA back in those days. I, I was just lucky, so I my baseball career ended real quick. But your football career then took off. What do you uh, What do you remember about showing up at that training camp and then first getting to meet Vince Lombardi? We were told to report to Sessenbrenner Hall on the campus of De Pere in De Pere, Wisconsin at St. Norbert's College. And I reported on time and I walked in the door and there was a bunch of steps and on top of it was Phil Bankston and Lombardi. And I walked in and Lombardi looked down at me and he hollered at me, what am I doing there? And I says, well, you drafted me, you tell me. And he says, what do you mean I drafted you? He says, who are you? And I told him who I was, and he said, man, I didn't know I drafted a midget. You're no bigger than a kid. And I says, well, you're the one that drafted me. I didn't draft me. I says, but I got other places I can go if you don't want me. And he just said a couple more things to fill and walked away, and Bankson says, don't worry about it. Just go over there and they got a room for you. And that was it. That's my first experience with Lombardi. But you ended up making the team. You must have had a, had a good training camp. The training camp went well. And about halfway through it, he called me into the office. And he wanted to tell me that I was going to make the team. But he also said I had to do him a favor. And back in the old days, if you were a veteran and you were traded from, say, Chicago to Green Bay, you could not trade that player, a veteran, from Green Bay back to Chicago. It had to go with another team. That did not apply to me because I was not a veteran. So what they wanted to do, they were trying to get a player back to the Giants, so they um, sent me to the Giants for two weeks, and this player came to Green Bay, and then when we played an exhibition game at the end of those two weeks in Bangor, Maine, they were going to release me, and Green Bay was going to pick me up, and this player was going to go with the Giants. So I went to the Giants, and I had a good time with them. I, I 
probably would like to have stayed there, but they took me in. At the halftime of the game, we switched teams, and uh, the player that they were trying to get back to the Giants went to the Giants, and I changed clothes and went back with the Packers. And I always said I'm probably the only player that went in at halftime winning and came out of the locker room at halftime losing. (laughs) That was it, and... I know that that had been done before, probably, but not the way that we had did it. And I was shocked that Lombardi, after about half the training season, would call me in and tell me that I was going to make the team. But he had a motive for it, too. Him and uh, the Giants were big buddies, so he did it for them. Right, he came from there, and then... You ended up playing the next season with the Cowboys under under Tom Landry, who was with the Giants when when you were there for two weeks. That's right. In fact, I went to the Giants. I didn't know what they would do, and I practiced just like I was on their team. And my defensive coach with the Giants was Tom Landry. So anything that him and Lombardi had, uh, discussed prior to me ending up at that first Dallas team was irrelevant because Tom Landry knew what I could do and at least he had an idea and you got to remember when that team was stocked many of the players were in the 14th, 15th, 16th year and then there was young snots like me that were in our early 20s and rookies, so there was a big age difference on that team. Uh, our Dallas team, the first year, we could not have beaten a good college team. We just were not that good of a football team. I think you ended up tying the Giants at the end of the year, and that was that was the only game that the Cowboys didn't lose that year. That's right. It was funny, the... It was odd altogether because there was the Dallas Cowboys and the Dallas Texans in the same town playing in the Cotton Bowl with maybe 20,000 to 25,000 people a game in the Cotton Bowl, which is like the place was empty. And they started swapping players from the Southwest Conference who were bringing them back into the Dallas uh, Texans and uh, the Cowboys were doing the same thing, trying to get some people that the hometown fans wanted to see. And it ended up that the Dallas Texans moved on. They moved out of Dallas. Right. They moved out of Dallas and became the Kansas City Chiefs. And then you talked about trading for Southwest Conference stars the Cowboys traded you to Pittsburgh for Dickie Magel, the former Rice star. You spent a year there, and then your friend Norm Van Brocklin traded for you while he was head coach for the Minnesota Vikings. And your experience there was pretty good. You did a great job returning punts and kickoffs, and you played some defensive back. My main job was I was starting free safety for uh, the Vikings, and I ran all the punts, all the kickoffs, and I also had to play offense. I played uh, running back, a 
replaced Tommy Mason, and I also did some flanker stuff. We had a guy named Paul Flatley. He was a player from Northwestern, and he was very injury prone, so every time he'd get knocked around for a little bit, I'd go up there and I'd play flanker. So I played flanker, halfback, and defensive back and ran all the special teams. And I was also, nobody ever knows this, uh, about the third-string quarterback, but my orders from Van Brocken was, if we ever get down to you, you are not to try to throw the ball. All you are going to do is hand it off. He didn't want me throwing. Uh, at five feet nine, I could have a shield over the line. <laughs> You, you would have been a, a, like Eddie LeBaron there. Yeah, I played with Eddie. Yeah, yeah, you did on the Cowboys. Yeah, Eddie was our number one quarterback for quite a while before Meredith took over. Yeah, and then that's really interesting to hear that you played both offense and defense for Minnesota because, you know, a lot of people think that the two-way era ended a lot before that, but there you were in the early to mid-60s playing on both offense and defense. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Lou Carpenter, but I played with him and I played with uh, his brother, Preston Carpenter, who was with Cleveland. And Lou did the same thing as I did when we were on Green Bay. We both had to be able to play both ways. The reason that both of us probably made the team is uh, that we could do so many things that with a 37-man squad, you had to have people that could do more than one thing. That's an often overlooked aspect of football history in that when rosters were smaller, players had to do more than one thing. You even had Jerry Kramer and Paul Hornick kicking field goals for the Packers back in those days. Well, Bill, it's been a pleasure as always, and thank you so much. And you can hear more from Bill in episode 62 of the Game Before the Money podcast. You're going to love the story about how he met Norm Van Brocklin in the first place. That's a great one. You can find that episode at thegamebeforethemoney.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jackson Michael. This is the Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network. Thanks for spending this time together talking about football, sharing some great memories, and hearing some great stories. And... It's really good perspective. I like what Bill Butler added about the 37-man rosters. There was a time when there were even 33- and 35-man rosters, and guys had to do more than one thing. And that's one context of history that's important to remember, is that a lot of guys, their value came from being able to play both offense and defense and on special teams. You know, Back in the day, even the starters would play on special teams. You'd have star defensive players running down covering kickoffs. 
And a lot of times your field goal kicker would have been an offensive lineman like Lou Groza of the Cleveland Browns, who made the Hall of Fame as an offensive lineman, but was also an outstanding kicker. He set a single season field goal percentage record in the early 1950s that held into the 1980s. And also, it wasn't unusual, even in the 1970s, for a quarterback to double as the team's punter. Dan Pastorini punted for the Houston Oilers, and Danny White was punting for the Cowboys even in the 80s. We're talking about starting quarterbacks here as the team's punter. So that's something to remember about football history. And I hope you learned something today. I hope you appreciate Sterling Sharp a little bit more. Can't say enough about that player. I remember the Packers even lining him up at quarterback a time or two. Just an outstanding athlete. And of course, thanks again to Bill Butler for all of his fantastic stories. You can hear more in episode 62 of the Game Before the Money podcast. You'll love his story about how he first met Norm Van Brocklin, and he's got a really funny story about scoring a touchdown after intercepting Zeke Bratkowski. So it's a power-packed podcast episode for you at thegamebeforethemoney.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jackson Michael. Thanks for listening to The Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network.